And thanks for joining us now on KVCR for KVC Arts, arts and entertainment, as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. Joined now by Gary Lewis of Gary Lewis and the Playboys in our region soon. Gary, I'd love to hear about how the name the Playboys came to be, but I have to say I think there may be a fair number of people out there who don't know that you are the son of comedian Jerry Lewis and the fact that you guys started off calling yourselves simply Gary and the Playboys and getting jobs without using your dad's name. Well, that's right, because we had to audition with a lot of different other groups that all were going for that same job. And I didn't want any favoritism. Plus, I wanted to see if we had what it took to get the job. So we were just Gary and the Playboys. Until this Diamond Ring started climbing the charts. And then my mom said, okay, now put Lewis after it. So that's how that started. And the story about where I got the name Playboys, there's really nothing to that at all. A couple of the guys were late to rehearsal. And when they came in, I said, where have you playboys been? (laughs) And that was it. Okay. There was no story, really. (laughs) Wow, that was really deep, Gary. Thanks a lot, man. Okay. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So it was your mom, then, that uh, suggested uh, using the full name, Gary Lewis. Oh, yeah, yeah. My mom, she financed everything that we did. Rehearsal halls and equipment, PA system. And she said, don't tell your dad anything about this because if this whole project fails, I have to come up with an excuse as to where this money went. (laughs) We didn't tell my dad anything. And we always rehearsed when he was out of town, you know, and we just kept it from him. So when this diamond ring hit number one on the charts in February of 65, my mom says, okay, now you can tell him. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I did. I told him. And he said, when did this happen? You know, I wasn't worried about him listening to rock and roll radio and discovering it for himself because he never listened to that. He always listened to big band music. Oh, my God. I can see this kind of a conversation about, say, if you're dating somebody new or maybe a smoking pot, something like that. Okay, anything. Yeah. (laughs) But this is like, Dad, we have to have a conversation. And this is, Dad, I'm sorry to tell you, I'm a musician. I learned it from you. Yeah, well, I was. I mean, I didn't actually put it to him like that. (laughs) I brought him the first gold record of this diamond ring, and I signed it to him. It was in a nice frame and everything. So I gave it to him, and he just put all that together, you know. And this is important to note, that while there were session musicians involved mainly for overdubs and stuff like that, maybe for solos and whatnot, you guys did actually play. You weren't just the voice. Yeah, we did all the basic tracks. And like you said, if we wanted somebody to do solos that Leon Russell couldn't do, we brought in some of the wrecking crew. 
But usually, that was kind of a minimum amount of times because Leon Russell was actually brilliant. I mean, he played everything. Oh, God, yeah. He, he played horns, piano, guitar, all the keyboards. So whenever we needed solos, Leon Russell usually played it, and he was our arranger. Well, so Snuff Garrett and he, I guess, were responsible for a lot of the songs and a lot of the arrangements. Oh, absolutely. Snuffy Garrett was our producer. He was the only producer we had, and he not only knew how to pick hit songs, but he knew exactly when to put them out, too. Like if the Beatles released a new record, he wouldn't release my new record. He'd wait until the Beatles started dying down, and then he'd put ours out. Oh. <laughs> you know, he just knew all this stuff. It was absolutely great. And we ended up having seven top tens in a row and like another 10 top 40s. That's something that I didn't realize either, that there was a string of, I think, the first seven or eight hits first, yeah, all coming first into the seven, top 40, yeah. yeah. And the only other people to do that were the Love and Spoonful. Yeah. Funny thing about that is, while I know them and love them and John Sebastian as a solo artist as well, I right. still can't name as many Love and Spoonful songs as I can <laughs> Gary Lewis and the Playboy songs. So that's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't either. When I think about it, I can't think of more than two or three. Yeah, me too. I don't know. I should look it up so I know. Normally I'd be better at trivia night, but with that one they'd get me. We referenced this diamond ring a bit ago, and this was your first gold record. I understand that it first started getting airplay due to a deal. This was, I think, Snuff Garrett making a deal with one of the disc jockeys. Yeah, Murray the K. That's it? So and you, uh, uh, I never heard anything about that deal. I know nothing about it, and I never would have heard anything about it if people interviewing me didn't bring it up. Well, you were also only 18 or 19 at so, this point. So I, I don't know details. I guess it happened, you know? Okay. Well, that got you on some shows, uh, allegedly, let's say. Got you on some shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Murray Decay yeah. had a very popular show that was always playing the Brooklyn Fox mm, in okay. the 60s. Multiple acts, maybe seven or eight acts, and you do five shows a day. You start at 11 in the morning, and the last show is 11 at night. It was like a marathon thing, but it was so much fun. Tom Jones was on it, The Temptations, oh, wow. oh, sweet. Cannibal and the Head. Hunters. <laughs> I mean, you know, just so many nice people. They were all nice. You know, just exchanging rock stories and all that. It was really good. I liked it. That is something that I have to say I don't really ask about it enough, I think, and that is that with folks like you and whoever you might be appearing with, then other, say, some malt shop crews. I think I see you've got a malt shop cruise coming up. Right, in October. I guess the question on that is, is one, yeah, it's got to be great because you're revisiting folks that you used to play with uh, 40 exactly. years ago. I've known them all this time. And then are you able to ever just be an audience member and enjoy some of the other acts, or are you always a celebrity face in the crowd for these? Well, you know, I don't, uh, I really don't get recognized hardly at all. Oh, cool. You know, when, when I'm playing, the crowd is, you know, it's usually a full house no matter where we play. Because we play to people that we played to in the 60s, and they bring their kids, and their kids bring their kids. And, and we're playing to people like probably 13 years old to 75. Wow. That's incredible. And, and it's just, it's so great that it passed down to 
two different generations, you know, and I attribute that to the fact that my music was good and it had no heavy messages, no killing, no mm-hmm. drugs, you know, nothing. It was just good music, you know, and that's the way it was in the 60s. The most negative thing I can remember about your music would be this diamond ring doesn't shine for me anymore. <laughs> yeah. And that was still yeah, fun. Right. Everybody, everybody comes up and says, Oh, this diamond ring, it was just wonderful. I was going to get married, and we played that song at my wedding. I said, you did? (laughs) (laughs) Do you listen to the words at all? (laughs) I mean, that's the thing about all the tunes that I did. It was either about love or breakups. I mean, they all sell, you know, good, good topics. Sure. Was this one written by, not Snuff Garrett, but no, this was no, another... No, it was written by Al Cooper. That's it, Al Cooper, wow, with a K. Yeah. People would know him and, if they And he originally up. wrote it for the Drifters, because yes. he wanted kind of a soulful kind of sound to it. And the Drifters said, nah, we'll hmm. pass. Wow. And then Snuffy Garrett, who was also handling Bobby V at the time, offered it to Bobby V, and Bobby said, nah, I don't uh-huh. like it. So Snuffy got me in his office and said, you know, there's a great song. I think it's really a great song, and you can do something very cool with it. And it's called This Diamond Ring. Bobby V and the Drifters didn't want to do it. So we did it, and it went to number one in the country, kicked the Beatles out of number one. It sold a million records in about six weeks, which kind of perplexed Snuffy Garrett. He says, oh, God, if it goes up too fast, it won't sell much. But that's not true. I mean, I've sold millions and millions of just that song. You know, and over the years, I keep getting another gold record. And that's how it is with five of my songs, too. Oh, yeah. Maybe even the first five or five of the first six. Yeah, I think it was the first five through just my style. It's just great, you know, and then all the digital radio companies that are out and everything. I mean, there's royalties from so many different things, and that's my mom's doing. She made a great deal for me to where my royalties never run out. Sweet. I know, she's great. And there's so many people, I would say, especially from your era and from a little bit further back going into the doo-wop days, so many of these folks these days did not get good deals, and if they're still with us, they may be a, an anonymous guy moving a refrigerator in a warehouse somewhere. Or not. Oh, exactly. Yeah. You know, so many 70s acts yeah. have told me, yeah, you know, things kind of got bad in the 80s, and we had to sell our rights back to the record company for a certain amount of money, but then that's it. Boom. Done. Yeah. You know, and I won't do it. I never did do it, and I won't do it. Going back to, gosh, some of the early hits, oh, let's look at Count Me In for a second. I know that, again, this one was arranged by Leon Russell. Were there any cases, though, of somebody bringing the song to you and the band, and then you guys really doing the arrangements, or was it usually Leon had it worked out? By the time we went into the studio, Leon already had all the charts, And if it required strings or horns or anything like that, he had all those charts done for them. All we had to do is play the music and then I sang it. Sweet. Yeah, so it was all done before we even went in the studio. 
And Snuffy Garrett told me, he says, you got to let me be in control. And that didn't bother me at all because he never had any failures. Hmm. You know, in the 50s, he had Johnny and Dorsey Burnett. And then he had Gene McDaniels. Then he had Bobby V. And then he came to me. So no failures whatsoever. And he knew how to pick hit songs. I knew that. So I said, sure, go ahead. You're in control. That's great. So if he picked a tune and he liked it and thought it would be good for me, him and Leon would work on those charts and studio time so that everything was done before we came in. Can you think of any of the tunes that were brought to you that didn't sound like, how could this be a hit, and then sure enough, it turned into one? Or did you just have blind faith at this point? Well, the only song I remember like that was a tune called Time Stand Still. It was very reminiscent of the ink spots. So I'm standing there and I'm trying to do it straight, and it's just so slow and... There's no groove, and and the words are dumb. (laughs) And I said, do we have to do this song? And Snuffy said, you know, since it is a bad song, can you do anything to kind of like spice it up or something? So when we got to a certain point in the song, I did my dad's high, squeaky kind of voice, you know? (laughs) Right. And for years, people were saying, how'd you get your dad to do that? It was on a B-side of one of the hits, and it turned out to just be as big as one of the hits, you know? So that's the only tune that I didn't really like. It turned out okay, but, you know, in my music, that's the thing. My dad did his thing, and I did my thing. I wasn't really comfortable doing his voice, but that's the only thing I could think of. <laughs> sure. memories of you A love I thought was true Now it's gone You're listening to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR. I'm David Fleming in conversation with Gary Lewis. We'll have information on Gary Lewis and the Playboys' appearance in our region in just a bit, though you can find out more at affordablemusicproductions.com. Now, Gary, there's a clip which I encourage people to watch. It's on YouTube. It's with you and your dad introducing your appearance on the Hullabaloo TV show. You guys had quite a routine going, and I have to wonder if this was all improv? No, they had cue cards. Okay. I remember Hullabaloo had cue cards just for speaking. I mean, you know, everybody knew their songs, so it did their songs. But, yeah, there were cue cards, and my dad still messed it up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But he tried to blame it on the guy holding the cue card. I remember that. Hey, he's got his yeah, thumb right, over the thing. Right. He said, move your thumb away from that card. <laughs> then he blamed his teeth. Oh, yeah, he did he the thing with this. He pushed them up like he had partials in there or something. Oh, I've practiced that, but I would pull my partials out. <laughs> There's a cool quote in there, too. He does say, hey, we got some, quote, really pretty girls, and the performance starts with you looking very dejected. Would you 
please describe what's going on there with why you look well, so sad at this know, point. Well, the pretty hullabaloo dancers and stuff. He said, yeah, you're going to be joined by some pretty girls. The thought was, I'm supposed to think it's going to be the pretty dancers and everything. And when the song started, we were in a little playground, like the drummer was up in a swing set, and there were like a bunch of six-year-old girls standing <laughs> around just staring up at us. Oh, they were in awe, you know. So at the end of the song, yeah, I was supposed to have a dejected face. You know, I'm singing the song and I'm going, oh boy, you know, kind of thing. And at the end, the little girl that was looking up at me says, can I have your autograph? And I said, well, you probably want my dad's autograph. And she said, is he somebody? <laughs> I always thought that was cute. That was good. That is very good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we spoke about Count Me In a second ago, and this was really, the question was revolving more around, I think, arrangements. But a nice yeah. side note, Count Me In at some point was used for a Coca-Cola song. Yeah, yeah, Coke hired a bunch of 60s artists to do, if you want to go to a party, let's have a Coke, you know, to the tune of Count Me In, yeah. Nice, okay. Okay. And there was also another one to the tune of Everybody Loves the Clown, too. Oh. Yeah. And Kellogg's Cornflakes had me do one. <laughs> and they asked us to write a song because they didn't want anything that was already done. But me and Leon Russell wrote a song called Doing the Flake. <laughs> and that was for Kellogg's Cornflakes. And, you know, it turned out to be a great little rock and roll tune. And sometimes we do it on the road still. There was a point where you got drafted. What did you do while you were in, by the way? Oh, they asked me to get a band together and tour all over the country and play USO clubs and officers clubs and stuff like that. And I said, please, no, come on. You know, I got to live with 50 guys in a barracks and you're showing me this favoritism? No, can't do it. Can't do it. Just give me a standard military job. So they put me in headquarters company supply room. I loved it. Okay. No attention on me, no nothing. Just let me do my job. And I could see it going either way. I think Elvis was proud to have just driven a truck instead of being Elvis Presley when he was in. Absolutely right. And when I got my draft notice, that's the first thing I said to myself. Elvis did it, I'll do it. Wow. And that was it. No trying to get out, no using any influential people, nothing. I didn't want that. And... I'm grateful for that over all these years because, you know, military groups all over the country, you know, give me plaques and things of thanks all the time for going into the service and being a veteran. And, you know, veterans groups are great. We still do free shows for veterans and their families whenever they want us. I'm proud of being a vet. Yeah, absolutely. While you were in the Army, some of the songs that were recorded before you being drafted continued to chart, at least in the top 100, if not, you know, really up there. Right. They went top 40. When I was in the Army, we had two songs in the can that we did, and they were remakes. One was Sealed with a Kiss, a Brian Hyland song. The other one was Listen to the Rhythm of the Falling Rain by the Cascades. So when I got out of the service, I was able to tour for about two or three years on the strength of those 
those also. And then, boom, the 70s happened, and it was definitely not very kind to 60s artists, I'll tell you that. We had to play clubs and do five sets a night if we wanted to stay working, and that was rough. That was really rough, but that's all I knew how to do. I mean, I've been doing that since I was 19, so I said, well, hey, I'll just tough it out, you know. In 1984, Mm -hmm. this agent from Indiana calls me and says, Hey, man, the 60s are coming back. And I said, who the hell is this? (laughs) You know, I was just about to hang up. He says, no, no, really, I'm telling you, it's coming back. And I can book you 60 to 100 dates a year. Recently, it's not quite that much, but for many years, it was exactly that. So I went with that agent. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly what he did. He did it. You mentioned how you know, difficult it was once we got into the 70s, but a little bit before that, Gary, this is something that I'd stopped asking people because, in all honesty, I didn't want this to just come out on every single interview. But now I wish I had asked this of every 50s and 60s group. I'd like to hear about the impact that the British invasion had on Gary Lewis and the Playboys because you actually did maintain success during this period where it hurt many acts. It- just wiped out an awful lot of guys. But me, I had Snuffy Garrett picking hits, knowing when to put them out. I had Leon Russell arranging and co-producing. So I loved the British invasion when it came over. I never thought that I'm going to have to work harder to stay up in the top ten with all those guys. It just happened. We didn't do anything. We didn't even make mention of it to each other, you know? And when Casey Kasem was alive, Mm -hmm. I did an interview with him. He told me, he said, you know, the only two American artists during the British invasion that were able to stay in the top ten were you and the Beach Boys. Incredible. I didn't know that. Yeah. I said, wow, cool. Well, you were just doing it. You didn't really maybe even notice. No, that's, that's incredible. No, I didn't look at the whole business as competition at all. Not at all. We just worked to put out the best stuff we could. And I never thought anything about competition. If somebody kicked me out of the top ten with a great song, great. I said, wow, that is a great song. I wasn't mad about it. It didn't matter that it was the Monkees, a fictitious group. It didn't matter. Well. (laughs) That happened. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know. I know, but that's okay. I mean, I even liked them. I watched their TV show and everything. Sure. And but, Daydream uh, Believer you know, is when good. When I t- found out that it was all the Wrecking Crew just right. doing all their music and stuff, I still liked the songs, but I didn't have as much respect, you know? Sure. Well, they did, to their credit, end up playing uh, later, but that's another story, another interview. Well, but that's, yeah, yeah, really yeah. cool stuff. Hey, a couple of song-specific things. We've touched on a couple of the big biggies, of course, the hits, but let me talk about Main Street. As a single release, it had the B-side of C.C. Ryder. C.C. Ryder. Can you see me doing Mitch Ryder? I look at C.C. Ryder and I think Ma Rainey, so I go back to 1925 on that one. Oh, well, I like that version, but I don't know why Snuffy picked that for me. I mean, what we did in the 60s mm-hmm. was to put our hit on the album, and then all the other songs on the album were hits by other people that were on the charts. I mean, that's how albums were done back then. You didn't put three or four hits on an album, no. Even though we did do that. Sure, it worked (laughs) out that way, yeah. Yeah, 
these two, Main Street and C.C. Ryder, came from the yeah. album Closed Cover Before Playing. Is that right. you that named it this? I don't really know who named that. Okay, okay. I really don't, but being a matchbook, I had seen that somewhere before. I can't recollect where, but when I saw the album cover, I said, oh, that is cool, I like that, you know, because I remembered that I saw it and I thought it was cool before. Well, the thing about Main Street being coupled with C.C. Ryder as the B-side, these two things were so drastically different. I mean, not ends of the musical spectrum, but one, the beautiful (laughs) harmonizing, and the other, the C.C. Ryder much yeah. more raw yeah. and scratchy, distorted in a way. Yeah. So was that yeah. a strategy to put out these different sounds to get picked up by different types of audiences? Is no, was... no. Uh, as a matter of fact, Snuffy Garrett didn't care what was on the B-side. Oh. He never cared what was on the B-side. He says it's going to sell just as many as the A-side. You know, he said, why rack your brain and possibly waste a real good song for a B-side? So therefore, he just said, I don't care what's on the B-side. And I didn't like doing that song, too. Oh, okay. Because Leon Russell told me something in the beginning of when we started recording. He said, you got to remember something. If you're known for singing in a certain style, don't ever sing out of that style. Mm. And C.C. Ryder was totally out of my style. Right. But Main Street is closer to it. That's what I'm... Yeah, yeah, these... yeah exactly right. I... I have no idea why that didn't sell. I mean, by that time, I wasn't with Snuffy anymore. Okay. You know, he was an independent guy. I loved the way Snuffy picked hit records. I couldn't believe it. Seven in a row? It's incredible. During the British invasion? Are you crazy? It was just wonderful, you know. Going back to your first hit, This Diamond Ring, as a single, it was initially released as an A-side, but then, as I understand, very soon after, as a B-side, although, wasn't it a different version than what was on the LP? Yeah, the original B-side of Diamond Ring was a song that was written by a jazz bassist, a guy named Leroy Vinegar. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was Leroy's tune. And he put My a lot of thought into titling it. used to play that all the time when he was just doing nothing, sitting around at our house. I perked up, I said, man, play that again. That's a great song. So I said, come on, let's do that one. So we did it. He was on the B side. And then Snuffy gets this idea. Why give the money to somebody else? He said, let's just write a quick song, rock and roll thing, and replace it on the B side of Diamond Ring. It was called Tijuana Wedding. It sounded like La Bamba, actually. (laughs) But that's what Snuffy said. He said, why give somebody else the money? I didn't agree with that. I loved the tune. It was on there for a while, maybe a month. Can I plug an upcoming date? Please do. Okay, August 20th, Saturday, San Bernardino, California, the California Theater of Performing Arts. Myself, Mitch Ryder, the Classics Four, the Circle, and Dennis Tofano, lead singer of the Buckinghams, are going to be playing. You just saved me some editing. I don't have to say this at the end of the show. That's really great. <laughs> oh, okay.
for this edition of KVC Arts. It's been conversation with Gary Lewis and music from Gary Lewis and the Playboys, part of the lineup on the Diamond Ring and Devil Tour, coming to San Bernardino August 20th. More on the concert at affordablemusicproductions.com. And with that, we wrap up another edition of KVC Arts. Thanks again to Gary Lewis, as well as to Nathan Gothels of Affordable Music Productions for getting me in touch with Gary. Here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Duloc, Paulina Garcia, and Sharina Watt. Many past KVC Arts programs can be found through iTunes, NPR One, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And most past shows are at kvcrnews.org arts. Music beds and themes heard on KVC Arts, composed and performed by Sean Longstreet. So thanks to Sean as well. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support, which you can do any time of the year. Go to kvcrnews.org support. And thanks again. <laughs>